<laughs> so for those that arrived now, I will introduce again. So we are here with Professor Nita Farahani. She's a futurist legal ethicist, professor of law and philosophy at Duke University, and author of The Battle for Your Brain. This is her book. I recommend everyone to read this book. It's probably the most important book written this year. It you what you hear today, it's a, she's she has a totally new perspective of, of, on how we should look at neurotechnology, brain privacy, cognitive liberty, how we should deal with brain data. Uh, it can be empowering, but it also can be a risk. So we are going to discuss interesting questions related to cognitive liberty, privacy, and AI. Uh, I am Luisa Jarowski. I'm a PhD researcher. I'm a co-founder of Implement Privacy, and I'm also the author of the Privacy Whisper newsletter. If you're hearing us, if you want to get informed about the next Women Advancing Privacy event, subscribe to the Privacy Whisper, www.theprivacywhisper.com. I have uh, a few questions to ask Nita today. And in the end, please uh, save your questions for the end. We'll have time for questions. Uh, so I'd like to start talking a little bit about the example. So in her book, she brings many examples of how neurotech can, can bring new risks for, for individuals, for societies, for groups. And I was really in shock. There were so many things that I, I was totally not aware that they already exist and they are commercially available or they are already happening in some parts of the world. And Professor Farahani, she brings this, uh, this urge that we need to discuss now this idea of cognitive liberty and protect this right to cognitive liberty. So I'd like to ask Professor Farahani to bring some examples to why do we have to talk about this now? So why it's different from, let's say, 10 years ago? And what, what's, what are these risks that we should start dealing with them now? So too many to go through, but first let me say thanks to everybody for joining. Thank you also, Louisa, for having me today. It's such a pleasure to be here. You have such an important newsletter for the community that is um, really bringing timely and vital information to everyone. So it's a pleasure to be here and to be part of this series. Um, one of the things that I've heard most frequently in response to people reading the book, even people who are deep within the neurotech industry, is how surprised they were about the number of concrete real-world examples of um, the use of neurotechnology that's already happening worldwide um, and the misuse of neurotechnology that's already happening worldwide. And so what I describe as to the kind of why now moment, I've been following neurotechnology for a very long time. Um, and what I have found um, over time and, and, and my general kind of concerns with respect to it were limited because I felt like, okay, there are some profound questions that it raises and the ability to decode what's happening in the brain. But the likelihood of it going wide scale or becoming part of our everyday lives seemed limited. Until 2018, when I saw a presentation um, that was by then one of the um, co-founders of uh, control labs, where he was describing a very different application and use of the technology. And that was the embedding of brain sensors into a watch or a watch-like form of bracelet at the time, which would pick up brain activities. It goes from the brain down the arm to the wrist and would pick up our intention to do things like type on a keyboard or swipe. And what he was describing was different in a couple of very important ways. One was um, that the technology would move from niche products with limited applications, like for meditation or, you know, for brain games that one might play, to becoming the way in which we would interface with other technologies. So it would replace eventually our keyboards so that we could type on virtual keyboards or replace our mouse by enabling us to swipe by thinking about doing so. 
but also could become part of our everyday technology, like a sensor in a smartwatch or in a ring. I was convinced that that technology would become the pivotal acquisition in the field. And so I, I started following what they were doing, was convinced that Apple would be really interested and would buy the company um, and because of the advances they already had in the smartwatch. I was shocked when Meta acquired them a year later for nearly half a billion to a billion dollars. We don't know exactly what it is. More recent estimates that I've heard are close to a billion dollars. It signaled the transition from neurotech as limited products to neurotech as universal platform products. Um, and the idea and the growth in sensors and smartwatches and rings to normalize the use of sensors for brain sensors to pick up everyday electrical activity was extraordinary. So the examples that I use in the book describe not just all of the acquisitions that are being made and the advances that are being made to embed brain sensors into earbuds and into headphones and into watches, but the ways it's already being used in the workplace to track, for example, fatigue levels um, or attention of employees or being used as part of wellness programs and the brain data that's being collected as a result or the communities that have cropped up of people engaging in meditation and sharing their brain data with each other already without recognizing the unique implications of doing so. The use of it in the criminal justice system in countries worldwide to interrogate criminal suspects' brains to see if they recognize crime scene details. The research advances in being able to put it into a neuro gaming environment, different stimulus that together with the sensors can pick up everything from a person's pin number to their political biases and preferences. And I describe not just the ways in which it's being, um, that neurotechnology is being used to really track what's happening in the brain, but the ways it's been used already to hack what's happening in the brain and to change it. So hopefully that gives a little context of the conversation and the examples in the book. Absolutely. Yeah, I, uh, her book is very rich in examples. And I'm sure most of you, all of you will be as shocked as I was with, uh, with all the ap possible applications, weapons, uh, neuromarketing, cinema. It's everywhere already. And I thought it was something like research or res research stage. And actually it is already there. And what we, we are currently living this uh AI hype. So AI is there for a few years, but now we're. We, it seems that we can only talk about that. So let's talk about that. Yeah. How do you think that AI can make those risks uh, worse? The when we put together neurotech and AI, what can go worse than if we didn't have AI? Yeah. So you know, it's it's not just advances in the the hardware. It's advances in the software of the coding with those activity, uh, the the brain activity activities, right? So these things are happening together, which is AI has been transformational for so many different technologies, but certainly anywhere where what the basis of the power of the technology is decoding large patterns of data. And here, where you're talking about the collection of brain activity data and then advances in machine learning algorithms that have become very powerful classifiers and decoders of information, that's where the, the combination of the two has meant that the rapid advances in AI, together with the rapid advances in the miniaturization of the hardware and the technology and the ability to embed it into everyday products like a watch or earbuds or headphones, has meant that suddenly 
not only is it possible to wear brain sensors all the time, but what they can decode from the brain has become much more powerful. And I'll, I'll say this, which is I've reviewed some articles that are coming out um, on decoding language and decoding speech and decoding imagery in the brain. It's happening so fast. As the advances in AI are happening, what can be decoded from the brain is happening much faster than people are keeping up with generally. So the next question, I think it's uh, very interesting for everyone, especially for, especially for those who did not read your book yet. So neurotech, uh, different from other fields, has many uh, positive applications. So for, it can help with diagnosis, early diagnosis. It can help improve life quality of people with diseases or with certain conditions. Uh, so it has many benefits. So how do we deal with it? When we are talking about bring privacy and restricting some uses, how do we deal with this field if it's a, uh, specifically it has benefits? It can help, it, it can save lives. So how do we measure this and how do we draw the line of what's possible or what should not be allowed? So I think it's very specific about neurotech. And many people, I think they are not aware that some of those devices can really save lives and can help people live a much better life. I think that's exactly right. So thank you for that question, Louisa. So, you know, one of the things that um, I've heard frequently is people first encounter my book is, okay, well then let's just ban the technology because it sounds horrible and dystopian and Orwellian to be able to read our minds. Um, and then I point out the reasons both that people are developing the technology, but the benefits for people in their everyday life. Some of those include... Um, the very basic, like take the fact that more than a billion people worldwide suffer from mental health or drug use disorders. Um, 55 million people are suffering from dementia and more than 60 to 70% of those people have Alzheimer's disease. More than 300 million are suffering from depression. And this just scratches the surface of the rising toll of neurological disease and suffering. Stress, there is a pandemic of stress, right? I mean, it is, you know, now so pervasive in society that many would say that it is um, broader than pandemic, right? It is, it is now endemic uh, of stress levels and its impact on health. The ability to track brain activity um, means that all of that becomes possible to not only understand, but potentially manage much more effectively. Um, and that could be transformational to be able to treat brain health and wellness as seriously as we treat the rest of our physical health and wellness um, for everyday you know use could really transform what it means to be human it also could mean that we change our brains for the better by enhancing it we could um, you were asking me louisa beforehand you said it looks like you've been incredibly busy like what are you taking to keep your brain sharp right um People are always looking for ways to sharpen their brain activity, to be more awake, more alert, to know which settings are better for them for focus and engagement and which settings are worse. Having real-world access to that brain data, like what does perk you up? What, where do you focus better? Where are you in a better flow state? Is it at home or is it really at work? Like how, what's the switching cost of being on social media to your word processing program that enables you to type your next book out, right? Understanding all of that would give people access to their inner selves in ways that they simply don't have access to right now. So I think it could be really promising, obviously also really promising for people who are suffering from paralysis or inability to communicate to enable them to have that um, method of communication or method of being able to interact with other technology. We could go on, but you know, I would say the reason it's coming is not for the Orwellian reasons. The reason it's coming is because of the importance 
that it has for our, our health and well-being. The question is, how do we realize those benefits and minimize what could be really incredibly oppressive and problematic um, downsides of the technology? And, and in her book, Professor Farahani, she brings this urge and she advocates for a right for cognitive liberty. And so it is an umbrella right. And I, my question is, how can we think of cognitive liberty and mental privacy, self-determination in the context of other privacy rights? So we have already a global privacy framework, different laws, so, but more or less we are uh, making them stronger and more similar to the GDPR, if I could say a, a global trend. So how could we think about this new right that you advocate for and how could it be integrated or how it would be connected to the existing privacy framework? Cognitive liberty, it's a right to self-determination over your brains and mental experiences which means a right to informational self-access and a right to be able to use technologies to change um, your brain for the better or worse, depending on how you want to do so, right? It's a, it's a right um, really to kind of, it's an autonomy right over the body. Cognitive liberty is also a right from, a right from um, means a right from interference with your brain and mental experiences. And that includes a right to mental privacy and a right to freedom of thought. Mental privacy is part of the privacy regime. It's part of our understanding of what privacy law means. Um, and I believe we have to make explicit that there is a right to mental privacy, which would prevent interference with our automatic reactions, our feelings, and even our thoughts. As a relative right, that will sometimes give way to societal interest when societal interests are strong enough to justify intervention. By contrast, freedom of thought as an absolute right would protect our robust rights, uh, I'm sorry, our robust thought, like the um, truly the inner monologue, the images in your mind, the part of our thoughts that we really identify with our sense of self most strongly. And freedom of thought as an absolute right would say there cannot be interception, manipulation, or punishment of those thoughts. I conceive of that as narrower than the privacy interest because um, we have to be careful not to over-legislate. We do try to read each other's minds all the time. We do try to change each other's minds all the time. And making it an absolute prohibition to do so would truly interfere with too much of ordinary human interaction. So do you think that thinking about current data protection laws, so for example, brain privacy would be a new type of conceptualization of privacy. We don't need to update or amend any laws, but when we are talking about privacy, we should have in mind that we are talking about online privacy, offline privacy, and also brain privacy. In this sense, more of like a doctrinal approach, a conceptual, and not yeah. necessarily amending or adding new laws that you mentioned, Liz. An individual has the right to have, do you think that that's your point of view? So my point of view is it would be useful for us to recognize explicitly a right to cognitive liberty as a new right. Mm -hmm. um, and that new right, I believe, as an international human right would have two important functions. One is it would create a global right that would be an umbrella concept across all of the different domains that you listed and more, right? The second would be it would create a powerful norm that we recognize that this update to liberty in the digital age requires a recognition and protection of cognitive liberty. The rights, the bundle of rights that make up cognitive liberty would be updated to include an understanding of the modern era. So privacy already exists. 
in the International Declaration of Human Rights. It would simply be updating it to make explicit that mental privacy is included within it. Freedom of thought already exists, but it's primarily been interpreted to apply to religious um, freedom and belief. And it would make explicit that we're really talking about any form of thought that is protected under freedom of thought. And self-determination is included as a collective and political right an update of that would recognize it's also an individual and personal right to self-determination. Great. Thank you. You're always so sharp and to the point. So I think it's a great answer. And it's the, and you're right about over-legislation. It doesn't work. And it's actually, uh, when we, when we finish the new legislation, it will already be old, probably the new advancements in your technology. Right. Right. I think when people try to legislate Louisa around like, AI rights or online rights or offline rights or metaverse rights, it ignores that all of these technologies work together to impact our brains and mental experiences, and they're not working in isolation. And we end up with redundant rights that sometimes are in conflict with each other and don't actually recognize the heart of the problem. The heart of the problem is how all of them are working together to create um, you know, and reshape and hack and, and change what our brain and mental experiences are like in the digital age. And and what it means to be human and what, and what it be- means to be human and how you like what it means to get to decide with whom you share private and intimate information and with whom you don't and what the kind of intimacy of relationships means in the context of what you choose to share and make yourself vulnerable to another person. All of that is included within a broader concept of cognitive liberty. And if we try to focus just on specific technologies, we're always behind Mm -hmm. and we ignore the broader context. Yeah, exactly. Perfect. And I don't know if people here in the audience know, but Professor Nita, besides being a professor of law and philosophy, she has also a background in biology. So I'm curious to know how does this background in biology help helps you to deal with this interdisciplinary concept. So there is a lot of philosophy here, human rights, but also biology. So neurotechnology is about the brain, how the brain works. So what do you think, how do you think your your bi- background in biology gives you, let's say, an unfair advantage to understand <laughs> or, or to, to talk about the topic? I don't know if it's an unfair advantage, but it certainly gives me a vantage point. Um, what I'm doing is is very interdisciplinary, right? It requires that you have a strong grasp of the science and to be able to read the scientific studies and the scientific breakthroughs and to keep up on what's happening in the science and to be able to ask the questions that you don't know, right? Because there's so much happening that experts have expertise about within the fields of neurotechnology and um, AI and technological development that, you know, I can recognize the limits of my own knowledge and go and talk to people who have the powerful expertise. Um, But it's, very much the intersection of philosophically, you know, as you put it, what does it mean to be human? Legally, how does that help us think pragmatically and practically about how to create the appropriate, um, you know, kind of framework to be able to move forward and have the technology be as powerful as possible to empower people? And then how does it actually work and what's the real threat? And that's really both biological and philosophical, right? Because, um, you know, if you can't act like, 
the question is like, what can you actually decode from the brain? What does it actually mean? What are brain states? What are the different frequencies and um, brainwave bands and other information that that uh, inform the question? And I always think that anytime you enter into an ethical and legal analysis about science and technology, it's always very important to begin with the facts and to have a very strong grasp of the facts. So it's not just science fiction and conjecture, but it's truly informed by what is the real risk? Um, and that means, I think, really diving deeply with a background and with the expertise necessary to get a strong grasp on those facts. And I hope I've been true to those facts in the book to really give people very concrete information that they need to navigate the space themselves. Yeah, after reading your book, my impression is that you, you, you have like a proprietary knowledge when you talk about the brain and synapses and what happens in anatomy, you can have much more fluency than me, if I was going to talk about brain privacy or cognitive liberty or how it affects the brain, I would be much more shallow. So it's your, your background in biology gives you this vocabulary and, and fluency that is great and, and gives strength to your arguments and to your facts because you can, you're really talking about something that you understand much better than probably philosophers and, and privacy experts. So I think it's a, okay. an amazing advantage. And I think in the book you mentioned uh, interesting stories about the comparison between brain data and DNA. Right. So there are some uh, interesting uh, uh, comparisons that DNA is unique. Is, is, uh, so we, we talk about a very sensitive type of biometric data is unique. You, you cannot change it if it, it gets stolen. And brain patterns, you say that in, in some aspects is also unique. It has this aspect. It's very, uh, maybe you can, with certain precision, you can identify a person by their, uh, the person's brain, private, brain, brain patterns. But you also talk about... Uh, what you see as some problems in the, DNA, the regulation of genetic data, as with with uh, so popular companies in the US, that you, you have uh, a in the beginning it was less regulated and consumers had access to more data, genetic data, and we could know you, you tell about your experience, you could know about diseases, and then when the regulation came, data became smaller, and now you, you in your point of view it was too much, and now and we ended up with less. We, we had less benefit as individuals that could be empowered with our genetic data. So having this uh, history of the genetic data that perhaps it was not the best, how do you think we should, uh, in comparison to, the, to genetic data, how do you think we should uh, deal with the regulation of brain patterns and brain data? Should we follow the same way of uh, genetic data, or, or what would be the reasons that would say, no, let's try to follow a different path? And you mentioned more or less in your book, but I want to understand what, what's the difference and how we can take a different way to have better results with the brain data. Yeah, it's a great question. So um, first, I would say, uh, you know, genetic data, the comparison in the book does a couple of different things. One is to show us the ways in which information from the brain which was becoming directly available to individuals, suddenly got kind of clawed back. That regulator stepped in and said, people don't really have adequate health literacy to have access to their own information. And I think that that's really on the wrong side of history. I think that we should have access to our own information, that it's very like who has a greater stake in your own bodily functioning, whether it's your genetic data or your neurologic data than you yourself do. And if the concern is around health literacy, the answer shouldn't be to prevent you from having access to the data. It should be pushing companies to become more uh, transparent about what the information means and to do things like um, the comprehension studies, consumer comprehension studies, to make sure that people actually do understand the information that you're making available to them. The 
you know, kind of question about whether genetic data is as sensitive in many ways as as brain data. I think it's sensitive, but not nearly as sensitive as brain data. And that's because it largely gives predisposition information and any particular gene or even combination of genes, even in polygenic risk scores, is not as powerfully predictive of who you are and information about what you're thinking and feeling and kind of present day risk than your brain data is. And so I think um, we should be more concerned about it. I saw somebody had asked a question of, you know, is this biometric data? Both of them are biometric data. And there is some recognition that biometric data may in some instances be more sensitive. And there's some states in the US and some jurisdictions around the world that have carved out biometric data as uniquely sensitive. I also don't think that's the right approach. And the reason I don't think that's the right approach is I think it depends on what inferences can be made about the data for when it's the most sensitive versus when it's the less sensitive. Um, and biometrics doesn't define the class of what, where kind of the inferences can be the most sensitive or most problematic or most likely to be misused. Um, so hopefully that answers the, the broader set of questions around yeah. genetics and neurologic data. And you talk a lot about uh bring uh, neurotech used in the work setting and it's great I, I saw i think the first time i heard about your work was your uh, world uh, world economic forum video right that you mm -hmm. have that very yeah. amazing animation she has an animation showing some uh, current uses uh, of neurotech in the work setting so uh, so you mentioned there can be very risky uses so let's see an employer can can ask in, in this, this topic future, uh, then ask employees to use uh, neurotech devices to check if they're tired, if they're paying attention, if they have high productivity, they have low productivity, or maybe if they are thinking about uh, asking for a raise or thinking about a rebellion or thinking about the opposite party or thinking against the employer. So all this, uh, it's soon, it's probably possible today with the with the available devices, but not uh, massively used. So my question is, when, when you're talking about these uh, neurotech devices in the work context, you, you say that it's most important to regulate how they're used. Is it possible to regulate? Do you think it's uh, realistically feasible to regulate use? So let's say we, we, we tell employers, OK, we have this neurotech device. You can use it, but please use in a way that is respectable, to, uh, that respects the employee. So how would it work in practice? And in privacy, we know that regulating use is problematic because it's difficult to control. It would the enforcement here and the sensitivity of when it would be a bad use and when it would be a good use, it would be difficult to enforce. So how do you propose that we, we could deal with this challenge? Yeah, it's a great question. So um, first, I will say access restrictions are equally problematic, right? And access restrictions, um, have failed. Uh, they've failed because there are breaches, there's cybersecurity risks, there's aggregation of data. Um, it's, it's very difficult to focus just on access restrictions. And access restrictions, I think, oftentimes distract people away from misuse restrictions to say, like, let's actually articulate what the particular concerns are, what the risks actually are, and then try to create safeguards and remedies against those risks of misuse. Um, so that's that's part of my push for us to talk about misuse is to recognize that um, the overemphasis on on data access has meant that we have regular breaches of data without any solution on the other end because we haven't actually done the hard work of figuring out what it is that we're worried about and then safeguarded against it. In the employment setting, already it has been used and misused, and it depends on where you are in the world. Um, and you know, it so 
one of the big risks of brain data collection is the nature of the data itself. So it is, you know, kind of broad spectrum data. If you're collecting brain data from somebody and you're collecting what we call raw brainwave data, that same data can be returned to over and again with different algorithmic interpretations of the data to probe it for information about the person. And when it's continuously monitored over time, that means that you could pick up things like cognitive decline over time or probe it for other information, especially if you have control over the workplace environment, like the computer that a person is using to include you know, different probes about what they're thinking or feeling or you know, even potentially synchronization of brain activity. So you mentioned the video that I included, which is an animated excerpt from the introduction of my book. And I paint a picture that is um, both the kind of promise of it, of tracking your own brain health in the workplace, but also the dystopian aspects of it, of workplaces using it to monitor and judge a person's brain biometrics to see whether or not they should be entitled to a performance bonus or to be given a raise or to be fired or even to be hired in the first place. On the other end of it, there is the um, potential of employers or governments to look for unusual patterns of synchronization of brain activity between people. And that could be evidence that a person is working with somebody that you wouldn't expect them to be, or if you have groups of people who are showing synchronization of brain activity, which happens when people are working together, to be used in ways that could be union busting, and employers have already misused it in that context. So limiting what an employer can get access to, right, to say you can have the algorithmic interpretation of the narrow piece of information that you can justify having a strong enough bona fide legal reason to access, right? If we have a starting place of the employee has a right to mental privacy, so you don't have a right to access their brain data. If you have a bona fide legal reason to access it, it's going to be limited in use. And the information that you can get is limited just to the algorithmic interpretation, for example, of fatigue levels, whatever it was that you justified the bona fide legal reason and exception to gain access to that information. The rest of the data would have to be overwritten or kept by the employee, could not be accessed by the employer. All of that has to be transparently included within workplace policies that say what's being collected, for what reason, for what kinds of decisions that are being made. And so in some ways it is both, right? It is both access restrictions to say the right to mental privacy means you as the employer cannot access the raw brainwave and it's misuse restrictions to say, if you do so, these are the rights and remedies, and these are all considered to be misuse of it, so that the right begins with the employee, but there are exceptions that can be recognized in certain circumstances. And would you propose, let's say, third-party auditing or self-regulation that the employer has a policy and has to follow it? What, what do you think that would work? Better? I mean, I hope for both, right? Which is, I, I never believe that self-regulation is sufficient in this context. And, you know, I don't really think like the honor code system is going to work with corporations and their access and commodification of brain data. So I think there needs to actually be legal rights and remedies. Um, and those legal rights and remedies mean that this needs to be, right, the right to mental privacy needs to be codified in law. And then it needs to be applied in context to the employment setting. And that could be like in the United States, the EEOC having specific guidelines over what can and cannot be collected and what constitutes misuse. And then there should be a right of action that an employee would have if an employer breaches um, the limited use cases in which they can actually gain access to it. So I think it's important that we have both, you know, actual legal remedies that are available to employees um, and 
very specific guidelines that take this broad concept of cognitive liberty and apply it context by context within nations worldwide. And employment is one of those contexts where I think we need to move pretty quickly to secure a right to mental privacy to employees. You have my vote to be the new chairwoman of the men, uh, cognitive yeah. liberty uh, regulatory body. I, you have my vote. <laughs> your, your regulatory proposals are, are solid. And now, um, going, let's talk about neuro neuromarketing and one, uh, an application of neurotech. So it was fascinating this chapter, and I could uh, I, in my PhD at, and in the newsletter I talk a lot about dark patterns in UX and those manipulative practices. So when you spoke about Avatar, I didn't know that what the movie had the neuro neurotech yeah. involved, and it was super interesting. I had no idea of those applications. So you mentioned uh, that there should be limits, right? So how how far can neuromarketing go, or how how can you use brain data to affect people's decision about it? buy something so i thought about ux dark patterns in privacy so i define ux dark patterns are practices that will manipulate cognitive biases to make people share more and more sensitive data so this is how i propose my definition for dark patterns in privacy do you think that cognitive liberty brain privacy and self-determination those could be interesting frameworks to deal with dark patterns in privacy which are which we found in ux or it would be something different because the, the level of Brain intrusion is different, so we should have separate frameworks. Well, how, how do you think they could those two ideas could connect? I find dark patterns and nudges and addictive features that are put into um, you know technology to be so deeply troubling and problematic. Um, and the question for me is not whether they're wrong. I think for the most part, most of them are. The question is, does the right to cognitive liberty safeguard against them? Um, and I go through that chapter and I will tell you that was the very hardest chapter to write because, um, as you know, having spent your dissertation on this, figuring out when do we overregulate when we try to say you cannot, um, you know, change people's minds or use practices that are targeting their cognitive heuristics or their brain-based biases? Um, and when does it cross over the line that we can all clearly agree and say, this is a bright line that we should not cross. Um, and I think there's a different answer normatively to that, like what should you do as a company versus legally what is permissible to do. And I say that there's that distinction because in law, we have to draw bright lines, right? Um, in ethics, you can have blurrier lines and you can have conversations about what like the kind of moral case is for why companies ought to behave differently. And I'm drawing the legal line in the chapter rather than just the normative, should people behave in that particular way? Should companies do that? And as a result, what I say is like, look, as much as I think that clickbait and disinformation campaigns and um, neuromarketing practices that better understand how our brains react to information and then seek to change advertisements to respond to that are icky in many ways, um, the... I don't think that the law can prohibit them all. I think that there are differences in degree from what we do in everyday behavior already of trying to persuade and change people's minds. When, however, you put addictive features knowing that they cause harm to individuals um, and they're designed to overcome a person's freedom of action, 
which is, I think, the only kind of real robust freedom that we have. We There's so much of our preferences and desires and biases that we don't really have control over. Um, but what we do have control over is choosing between those preferences and desires and how we'll act. When we no longer can choose because we've been addicted through little dopamine hits, auto scroll features, like buttons, and um, you know the kind of set of features that are being put in to really disengage our critical thinking and have us act more automatically, reflexively, and in an addictive pattern, then I think we've gone beyond the point of what is legally permissible to actually enter into interference with our freedom of thought. Um, and that's where I draw the line in the chapter to try to show the distinction. And so I lay out, as you described, neuromarketing, disinformation, the seductive allure of neuroscience, dream incubation, um, and do this kind of full spectrum, including the addictive features of technology to try to figure out legally, where can we say this is a manipulative practice that goes a step farther than what we should legally permit to occur. And a follow-up question to, to this. So today, if, uh, I posted on LinkedIn uh, this. So I proposed in the newsletter, not yet in the PhD, but in the newsletter, this idea of dark patterns in AI, which be uh, practices that try to uh, suppress our autonomy. So one of them would be impersonation. So let's say we have an AI uh, chatbot that tries to pretend that is a, there is a real person behind to, to, to scam or to, do, to have uh, malicious intentions. And the other, uh, the other type of dark pattern would be uh, deep fake. So every time you try to distort reality and pretend that there is a real video behind it or, or something that is factual when it actually is not. So those would be two, two types of dark patterns in AI. So let's, again, in, within neuromarketing, let's imagine that a company developing a new product, which is a chatbot that uh, with, based on A-B testing and brain data, they know exactly what the chatbot has to say to make the person uh, share their impressions and, and opinions and thoughts. So they use this uh, chatbot to have a, a pattern of uh, thoughts and, and, and maximum brain data possible. And then they target uh, they do target advertising and they offer products and services. And they know exactly, of course, uh, similarly to behavior advertising, they know exactly, but which, with much more precision, uh, how this person thinks and when this person is exactly going to buy. So this, in this uh, hypothetical example, this hypothesis, we have neurotech and AI together to offer uh, super targeted behavioral and mental advertising. So here, it's, it's a little follow-up from the previous question. It's already happening and it can get worse now with AI and everybody wants to create new AI applications. So how do we draw the line here, especially when it's already happening and we have AI to make it worse? So I'm not sure scientifically what you see is the worse, um, meaning when you describe AI makes it worse, what I would want to better understand, um, you know, it sounds to me like what you're describing um, is primarily around the fact that AI makes it harder for us to tell fact from fiction, right? And so um, it and it distorts it in a way that distorts our perception of reality. Um, and as our perception of reality is shaped and reshaped, the more precisely that you can trick the brain into believing something is true that is false, um, the more potentially problematic it becomes. Exactly. And. I agree with you. Um, however, uh, I think it's a very difficult place to draw the line legally. And so I give the example of disinformation 
which is the same as these kind of deep fake ideas, right? It is um, using brain heuristics and shortcuts, things like we are much more likely to believe that something is true if you put irrelevant scientific information that is associated with it. Mm -hmm. um, and especially if you try to describe a behavioral phenomena in terms of neuroscience, um, people believe through the reductionist perspective of neuroscience that it must be true. Even if you show them utterly irrelevant brain images, they are more likely to believe your arguments because of like, I could just put up some brain images behind you, behind me right now, and you just might believe whatever I'm saying because I have brain images here, right? Um, the question is, how do you legislate lying, right? And we do, we have fraud, we have um, certain places, but generally that's around intent to cause harm. Um, and we look at, you know, false representation of fact, which legally used to not be something that we, like we had theft as something that we would punish, but not fraud and misrepresentation of fact, because we used to say, well, if you get fraudulently um, induced or tricked into something, then like shame on you for not having figured it out. It'll be harder to make that argument right over time. And eventually we did move to say, okay, well, fraud and misrepresentation of fact when it actually causes the other person harm is something that we can legally legislate. And I think we'll have to do something similar in the context of um, disinformation and deep fakes, right? Which is, is it designed to manipulate elections, for example, by having, you know, a politician look more trustworthy to you so that it taps into your brain and you believe what they're saying more and you're more likely to vote them, vote vote for them, in which case the harm is not so much to you as it is to the democratic system as a whole. And the result is that, you know, we are, um, we, it is a form of election fraud, right? And, and looking kind of context specific to what the impact of the disinformation is. But I think generally, trying to take a kind of nuanced position around, um, you know, AI becoming more precise and making us believe things that are false as true, and then trying to generally say that that is illegal without specifying what the damages or the harm are, would be very novel and different and kind and very difficult to implement and, and to distinguish between my three-year-old lying to me or my eight-year-old lying to my babysitter and saying, no, no, when our parents are home, they let us have unlimited screen time. This happened the other night. I come home and, you know, she's sitting on her screen and I was like, why are you on her screen? And the babysitter says, well, she says they're allowed to have screen time all the way up until bedtime. Not true. Right. <laughs> and so like that would be illegal because she's very believable, incredible. Like where do we draw the line between ordinary lies and precise lies because it's perpetrated by AI, right? It, it would be hard to do that. Fascinating, exactly. Professor Farahani, thank you so much. I'm so grateful. And thank you so much for having me and for doing this series. And everyone, if you want to join and to get informed about the next Women Advancing Privacy Sessions, please subscribe to the Privacy Whisper newsletter, www.theprivacywhisper.com. So thank you so much, everyone, for joining. See you, everyone. Thank you so much for having me. Women Advancing Privacy Event. Bye-bye. I really enjoyed it. Thanks.